Well, good morning. Man, it's good to see all of you here, and it was good to hear all of you singing. The choir was awesome earlier in the service, and that was, that was good. But you, my guys, make up a pretty good choir yourself. Sort of where I was positioned up there when you guys were singing, what an awesome experience that was. And let me just say how good it is to see all of you in this room, Chad. It was even good to hear you sing as well. Yes, uh, I got as far away from you as I could over here on this other side. But it is good to have all of you here. And all of you who have joined us online this morning, thank you for joining us and being with us today as well. We're excited about all of you worshiping with us today. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me to John's Gospel in the 21st chapter, John chapter 21. Uh, we've been on a journey together through the final chapters of the Gospel of John, and, and we've worked our way through from chapter 17 forward, and then last Sunday, if you were with us, we kind of concluded John chapter 20. And at the conclusion of John chapter 20, you have these two verses that, that John writes, he says in, in verse 30, he says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So John says, look, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't have the time or the ability to write down everything that Jesus did. But then verse 31, he says, But these that I have written, these I have written that you may believe and that believing you may have life in His name. Believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and that believing in Him, you may have life in His name. So that's His purpose. He says, I've written everything so that you might come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you will receive life everlasting. And you will have that life abundant. Now, when you read those words, you probably think, well, that's a pretty good place to end a book. I mean, how do, you, how, do you, how do you improve upon that? But then you turn the page and then you're at John 21. So that's caused many people to go, well, John 21 is an addendum. It's something that was added on to the end of the corpus of the main part of, of John's gospel, which would have been chapters 1 through 20. Some have even concluded that, that it was somebody other than John that wrote chapter 21. Time doesn't permit me to go into all the details and all of the reasons and arguments and discuss all those things this morning. I just simply want to say this, whenever all of the manuscripts and all of the, the, the parts of manuscripts that were found throughout all the discoveries, you never find John chapters 1 through 20 apart from having chapter 21 with it. No matter what you do, there's not two separate entities that were glued together at some point later in church history. No, if you find John chapters 1 through 20, you always find chapter 21 with it. And what I think that really tells us is that John 21 was written by John as a perfect epilogue or a conclusion to everything else that he had already discussed. And I think as we work our way through it over the next couple of weeks, that'll become clear to you. But here's what I would say. I think it gives us even more ability to understand, you know what, that which we have in front of us, the, the Bible which we hold in our hands is the inspired, inerrant Word of God that we can depend upon. And it is there and it has been given to us so that we can have confidence in it and can build our lives upon it. And so I'm going to approach it that way unapologetically so that you understand where I'm going to come from. And so I want us to focus on John chapter 21 and particularly I want us to focus on the first half of it this morning in which we really find a story of about a really cool and a really awesome fishing expedition that the disciples were on. Well, that's enough introduction. Let's begin to read it. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of God. After these things... Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. 
Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. And Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You that we're able to come into this place to sing songs about Your awesome nature, how great and how awesome and and how mighty You are, to sing songs about Your grace and the mercy that You've extended to us, about how faithful You are to us. Lord, all those words have flown from our mouths this morning and our our voices, we've lifted them to you. And now we, we want to pause as we open the scriptures, that we want, to, we want to be quiet as we sit before you and as we study and we ponder your word and we, we beg and we pray for your Holy Spirit to speak to us. We need to hear from you, Lord. We desire to hear from you. We want our lives to make a difference. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning as we study it asking you for your blessings upon this time. In Christ's name that I pray. Amen. You'll notice this passage that I read for you begins and ends. It's sort of bookended in verse 1 and in verse 14 with this, uh, this statement that John makes that Jesus manifested himself or showed himself to his disciples. Um, all of his previous appearances, the, the other two appearances that we read about, occurred in the city of Jerusalem. But, but John tells us now that, that at least seven of these disciples, and I believe all of them, had traveled the 80 miles from Jerusalem north to the area of Galilee. And they were now at the Sea of Tiberias, which is also named the Sea of Galilee in the, in the rest of the Gospels. In fact, these disciples are out on a boat and they're fishing. John names five of the disciples that were there. He says Simon Peter, Thomas, uh, who's called the twin that we studied about last week, Nathaniel, who was from Cana, and then the sons of Zebedee, who we know from other parts of Scripture, are James and John. Now, most scholars propose that the other two unnamed disciples that are on this boat were likely Philip and Andrew, because they had ties to 
the region, they were from there, and they had ties to, to Peter and to James and to John, according to John chapter 1, verses 40 and 44. Now, I'm the inquisitive sort of person, so I want to know why John didn't name them. Why didn't he, why didn't he name that it was Andrew and Philip that was on the boat? I also want to know where are the other four disciples that aren't named here? Because there's still 11 of them. Where are they? Well, inquiring minds want to know, but we don't actually get any answers because the Scriptures don't tell us, so we're only left to speculate. I do think we know why the disciples are there, though. We know why they're in Galilee. Jesus, in fact, had instructed His disciples, according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, He had instructed all of them to go to the mountain there in Galilee and to wait for Him to appear to them once more. Remember that Galilee was the region where, where Jesus had, had begun His earthly ministry. It was where many of these disciples were from. It was where He had first engaged them. It was where they had first heard about the good news. And so there they were, back in this region of Galilee, and just as He had commanded them to do. We don't know how many days they had waited for Jesus, but we know that in the meantime, Peter announced to his fellow disciples, I'm going fishing. And all of his buddies were there with him and said, well, we're going to go with you too. And so they all went out and they got out on the boat and they went fishing. Now, some have criticized Peter and the other disciples for doing this. They suggest that Peter and the other disciples demonstrated disobedience by not waiting on the mountain where Jesus had specifically instructed them to go. They suggest that their impatience, Peter's impatience along with the others, caused them to abandon the mission that Jesus had given for them to fulfill. I'm, quite honestly, I'm not convinced that such, a, such an act was a demonstration of disobedience. I mean, after all, Peter and the disciples are in Galilee. They're in the region where Jesus had commanded them to go. And as another of, of a commentator has noted, even though Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead, the disciples still had to eat. So in my mind, it doesn't appear as though Peter and the others were running away from Jesus back to an old way of life. It seems to me that as they waited on Jesus to reappear, they attempted to use their skills as fishermen to not only pass the time, but also to feed themselves. Here's the real issue. They weren't successful at it. The Bible says that night that they went out, and the emphasis in the Greek is on that particular night that they had gone out, they, were, they, they had caught no fish. Consequently, I don't believe that John includes this account of Jesus once again manifesting himself to his disciples as a means of showing how disobedient to Jesus that they were. I believe he includes it to show us how utterly dependent upon Jesus that they were. And if that's the case, I want you to know you and I better not miss that point in our own lives. That's a point you and I need to recognize as well. In fact, consider with me this amazing story. Just consider how familiar maybe this story is in John 21 with one that we're told about in Luke chapter 5. You don't need to turn there, but maybe you want to write that reference down to go back and read it for yourselves later. In Luke's gospel, chapter 5, Luke tells us about another fishing expedition that the disciples went on as well. In that particular point, though, we read that Jesus was bound by the Sea of Galilee, the same sea that He's there at this point, and He's preaching and He's teaching, but all the crowds are pressing in on Him. In fact, there's so many pressing in on Jesus that He decides to get into Peter's boat. And I believe He got into Peter's boat so that they could push back just enough so that He could have a better vantage point of all the people that were crowding in around him. Not only that, but his voice when he spoke 
would carry out and others could hear him much better than if he was huddled up in the middle of all of them. But Luke gives us an interesting understanding about that. Luke tells us that, that Peter had been out fishing in that boat all night long, and guess what? He had caught no fish. In fact, he had caught nothing all night long. But Jesus tells him after he had preached to the crowd, he says, Peter, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And then Luke goes on to tell us what Peter said back to him. Verse 5 of Luke chapter 5, Simon Peter answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. But nevertheless, at your word, we will go and let down the net. Then the Bible says this, when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners and the other boats to come and help them. And when they had come, they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and who all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. Now, do you see the parallel sort of that happens between Luke chapter 5 and John chapter 21? In both of these situations, the first thing that we need to recognize is that the disciples on their own didn't catch anything. They were toiling, they were working, they were striving, and they had nothing. I certainly can identify with them. A couple of weeks ago, my family and I went to the beach for spring break, and when we did, I decided it would be a great idea to charter a fishing boat. And very interestingly enough, kind of like it is here in John chapter 21, there were seven of us on that boat. There was the fishing captain and the six in my family. So seven of us were on that boat. And we were fishing. And and I'll just tell you, Charlie is the self-proclaimed fishing guru of our family. If you don't believe him, he'll tell you. He'll tell you everything that he, won't he girls? He'll tell you exactly that he's the fishing, he's the fishing champion of our family. And that day proved to be true. He was. He caught six as we went out from, from the near shore that we were at. And uh, all the rest of the kids caught, a, caught fish as well. But Caroline and I, well, we didn't catch anything. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not uncommon for me when I go fishing is to come back having not caught anything. I don't know how common, though, it was for Peter and for James and for John to not catch fish. See, they were professionals. This is what they did for a living. But I appreciate what Andreas Kostenberger has written. He has observed this in his studies of the gospel, and he states the remarkable fact that in all the gospel accounts, the disciples never catch a fish without Jesus' help. Remember, I told you that I believe John includes this story in his gospel in order to show us how utterly dependent the disciples were upon Jesus. And now, I believe that point is made abundantly clear to us when Jesus, who appears to his disciples as a stranger on the shoreline, they don't recognize that it's Jesus, but he calls out to them and says, children, or boys, or lads, have you caught anything? Have you got any food? You know that question had to rub them the wrong way. It always does me whenever I come back fishing and I walk in the door. How many did you catch? The same I caught last time, none. 
I mean, if you've been out fishing and you've done all the work that you have to do to catch fish and you don't catch any, you don't like being reminded of the fact that you didn't catch any fish. Think about these guys. They've been out there all night throwing their nets over and those things were heavy and they would bring them back in and clean out all the trash and everything inside of them only to find no fish on the inside. When you've been asked after doing that all night long, how many fish have you got? All that does is remind you of your inadequacy. Surely that's the case with these disciples. And here they have this man on the shoreline they don't recognize asking how many fish they got. Listen, being reminded of our insufficiency and our inadequacy may not be the most pleasant thing to have happen, but listen, it is absolutely necessary. And here's why. Being reminded of our insufficiency and inadequacy is is absolutely necessary because it opens up us to being able to recognize where our true sufficiency lies. And see, it lies in Christ and in Christ alone. And that is what John 21 teaches us. In fact, the first lesson that I want you to note that I've included for you on your outline this morning is simply this. What we cannot help but understand from this text is this. Our insufficiency can only be overcome by Christ's all-sufficiency. Our insufficiency can only be overcome by Christ's all-sufficiency. There's something here that I think is worth pondering. As I said, I don't believe that the disciples were being disobedient in their fishing endeavor. Nevertheless, I do believe that this was a perfect opportunity for the Lord to remind them of the necessity they had to depend upon Him. And listen, that lesson that they learned is a necessary one that every single one of us must learn as well. You see, on our own, you and I are insufficient. We are inadequate. We cannot do anything for ourselves. Oh, we think we can. We, we believe that we can. We, we have ideas that we can fix the problems that we face in our lives. But the fact of the matter is, every single one of us is insufficient. Apart from the power and apart from the blessing of God, regardless of the issue if you are relying on your own ingenuity, if you're relying on your own willpower, you will always ultimately fail. You can struggle, and you can work, and you can claw, and you can scrape, but the words of Jesus in John chapter 15 will still be true when He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. I want you to know the Apostle Paul picked up on that exact same thing and he wrote about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. And he says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Listen, our insufficiency can only be overcome by Christ's all-sufficiency. That's the first lesson this text teaches us. The second one is this. Our excuses must be replaced by our obedience to Christ's commands. Our excuses must be replaced with obedience. I want you to think about this scenario for a second. Out there on that lake were these men who were professionals. They were the guys that, they did this all the time. 
And that's what makes this such an interesting thing to me because Jesus is on the shore and they don't know it's Jesus, but he's already reminded them of just how inadequate they are as fishermen. How many have you caught? None. Okay, good. Throw out on the right side of the boat. Now, can you just begin to imagine the exchange of looks that was starting to happen on that boat? You've got to be kidding me. He wants us to do what? Look, pal, we're the professionals. We know what needs to be done. Don't you think we've already tried that? And after all, what difference would it make if we fished on the left side or the right side? We're in the middle of the lake. What difference would that make? Honestly, that's probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Look, here's what happens when you go fishing, pal. Sometimes the fish aren't here. They've swam somewhere else. This is just one of those nights. I don't think that's too far from recognizing how they might have responded, particularly in the way that Peter responded in Luke chapter 5. Because there Jesus told him to launch out in the deep. And Peter said, look, I've been doing this all night. Here's the thing. When you're frustrated, you're always tempted to make excuses. When things aren't going the way that you want them to go, the temptation is to always to make excuses for why that's happening. But I want you to see that both here in Luke chapter 5 and there in John 21, if Peter and the rest of the disciples had set in to making excuses, if they had set in to saying, look, this is why we're doing it the way we're doing it, and what you're suggesting to us doesn't make any sense, if they had set in to making excuses, if they had tried to justify their actions and written off what Jesus told them to do as being ridiculous and inconsequential and nonsensical, then I want you to know they would have missed out on the catch of a lifetime that the Lord wanted to bless them with. J.C. Ryle has commented this way. He says, Our Lord's objective was to show the disciples that the secret of success was to work at His command and to act with implicit obedience to His Word. They may have legitimately thought to themselves, well, what difference does it make why I cast the net out on the right side or the left side? It makes all the difference in the world if it is the Lord Jesus Christ that is telling you to do it. Listen, our excuses must be replaced with our commitment to obey the commands of Jesus. Now, I think it's important also to note here that when the Lord spoke to these disciples, did you notice what He did not say? He did not say, hey boys, just back up. I'm fixing to have all these 153 fish just flop right into your boat without you doing anything. He didn't say that either. He didn't say, look, just stand back and let me do it all and you don't have to do anything. He didn't say that. No, they were to use the tools that were theirs to use. In this case, they were to use the nets, but they were to use these nets in the way that Christ commanded them to use it. The disciples didn't have the option of just sitting back and expecting the Lord to do all the work through no effort of their own. No, Jesus instructed them to work, but the tools that they were to use had to be used in the way that Christ commanded and the timing that Christ commanded. And when they did, look at verse 6, all of a sudden they were not able to draw the net in because of the multitude of fish. Warren Wearsby, he has stated it this way. He says, we are never far from success when we permit Jesus to give the orders. 
and we're usually closer to success than we realize, he says. Well, really, I would say just the absolute opposite is also true. That's true, but the opposite of that is also true. I believe, I believe that as we've learned from this passage, if we refuse to obey what the Lord commands us to do and continue to make excuses for why we can't serve the Lord, then we will never, ever see Him work in mighty ways in our lives. The reason is this. The Lord blesses our obedience, not our excuses. So those are the first two lessons we've learned. Our insufficiency can only be overcome by Christ's all-sufficiency. The second one is this. Our excuses must be replaced by our obedience to Christ's commands. That leads us to the last lesson that I want us to learn, and it's this. Our previous failures must not keep us from pursuing a present fellowship with Christ. Our previous failures must not keep us from pursuing a present fellowship with Christ. Maybe it was his voice, but I tend to believe the fact that that net that had been limp all night long, laying out there, all of a sudden was taut and tight with all the weight of the fish that was on there, that it caused John to immediately turn to Peter and say, it's the Lord. And I think John did that because he remembered what had happened in Luke chapter 5. I think he remembered the fact that the nets that they tried to bring in that day were breaking and they couldn't even get all the fish in because of it. But even though it was John who recognized Jesus first, notice it was Peter who wanted to get to Jesus first. Peter, this is the craziest part of this story, and I've always stopped and tried to understand what must have been going through Peter's mind because he just immediately turns his attention away from the fish. He doesn't even care. He's a professional fisherman. He doesn't care about the fish anymore. All he cares about is the man on the shore, and he immediately gets up, puts on his coat, and drops into the water and starts swimming. I went, why didn't you row? I mean... (laughs) And then, why did you put on your coat to go swimming? Wouldn't that even weight you down? And you'd be surprised the number of scholars that have attempted to try to explain it. And I'm just going to tell you, this is what I think. I don't think Peter was thinking really clearly at this point about what he was doing. I think he wanted so badly to get to Jesus that he didn't care. Think about it. Peter was the one who just a, just a few weeks earlier, and a few chapters earlier in our text, on the night before Jesus was crucified, stood with Jesus. And he said, I don't care what the rest of these boys do. I'll never leave you. I'll even go and die with you, Jesus. Peter was the big, bad braggadocio who pulled his sword out and lopped off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, You know, he was going to be the bad guy. He was going to be the one that fought. But then just a few hours later in the courtyard of the high priest, he not only once, not only twice, but three times denied even knowing who Jesus was. Peter, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, did everything within his power to distance himself from Jesus. He had the most reason to be ashamed. He had the most reason to be, to be embarrassed about all that he had done. Which is why I think he wanted so badly at this moment to decrease the distance between him and Jesus as fast as he could. Let me say this to you. If you have failed, 
If you have blown it, if you have done things that you look and you say, you just don't know how embarrassed I am about how I've lived my life and the things that I've done, let me say to you, don't run away from Jesus. Get to him as fast as you can. You will find that Jesus is much like the father in the prodigal son story. That he's running to you with open arms, ready to receive you. You will not find that Jesus wants to push you away because you've done something or because you've behaved in a certain way that's embarrassing to you or you know you've messed it up. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus is the one that says, come to me. Come to me because there's forgiveness here. Peter didn't run, but he swam. He left the, he left the rowing to the, the rest of them who had this big catch of fish. They had to do all the work of getting all those 153 fish back, and you would be shocked. Maybe you wouldn't, but at your leisure, you were welcome to go back and read all of the various kind of explanations for why there were 153 fish. You would, you would maybe be surprised at the way that they've been able to take that number and use it to illustrate and explain so many different things. I'm going to tell you what I think. They were fishermen. They knew how many fish they caught. They needed to be able to brag about it the next time that they went out. So they counted them. And that's how they get to 153. Here's the important part, I think. Once they get all 153 fish back to the, back to the shoreline, Jesus looks at them and says, come and eat breakfast. One writer puts it this way, this is the same Jesus who had washed the disciples' feet in the upper room, who had taken their places on the cross, and who had assumed their sin in his person on Golgotha. And here Jesus is still serving them, providing their daily bread there on the seashore. And he provides for you and for me in this present day in the same way. You see, it's Jesus who stands there telling them to come and eat breakfast. This is the same Jesus who to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Let me tell you something. Come and dine. Come and, and have fellowship with me. That is the standing invitation that Jesus offers. Come. Have fellowship with me. Yes, you may have failed in the past. Yes, you may have grown cold. But my invitation to you is to come, is to be restored, is to be served by me and to have communion with me. So those are the three lessons that I think this passage teaches us. Our insufficiency can only be overcome by Christ's all-sufficiency. Our excuses must be replaced by our obedience to Christ's commands and our previous failures must not keep us from pursuing present fellowship with Christ. All of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. We will experience the blessings of the Lord that will far exceed our expectations and imaginations when we place our trust in the all-sufficient Savior 
live our lives in obedience to Him and pursue intimate fellowship with Him. So let me ask you this morning, is that an accurate description of you? Is your trust in the all-sufficient Savior or are you trusting in yourself or something else? Are you living your life in obedience to the Lord and to His Word or are you making excuses for why you're not doing it? Are you pursuing an intimate relationship and fellowship with the Lord? Or are you allowing your past or even your current failures to keep you from Him? Let me just say to you, these are very, very important questions for you to consider. And I think they are coupled to this important question that, is, that begs us to ask from the text And that is, do you recognize the one who's calling out to you today? You see, initially the disciples didn't recognize that it was Jesus calling out to them. It was only when they obeyed his word. It was only after they obeyed him and began to participate in the great blessing of that great catch that they discovered that it was the Lord. Have you made that discovery today that it is Christ who is calling out to you? Here's how you can know that it's him for sure. You can obey him. It may seem to you that the Lord is distant. In fact, you may even think that He's unreal in many respects. But I promise you that if you step out in obedience, He will begin to work in your life and you will find Him just as surely as those disciples found Him. You may ask, what is it that I'm supposed to do? What is it that He's commanding me to do so that I can be obedient? Well, listen, if you are a Christian... If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't know all the specifics that the Lord Jesus is commanding you to do, but I am convinced of this. He tells His disciples and He tells us that if anyone would become one of His disciples, they must deny themselves, and that means they must abandon the pursuit of their own way and abandon living their lives according to their own desires. They must deny themselves. They must take up their crosses and follow Him. And you can be assured that whenever you do that, the Lord will put you into use in His service. He does not save us and then tell us to sit and to soak. Rather, He saves us and He fills us with His power and He moves in our lives in His authority to go out and to be squeezed out into the world in service for Him. Back in Luke chapter 5, right after Peter and James and John and the others hauled in that net-breaking catch of fish, you know what Jesus said to them? He looked them dead in the eyes and says, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. You see, brothers and sisters, those of us who have heard the Lord call to us and who have been called and saved from the penalty of our sin, we are commanded to go and to make disciples. We go in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming that there is forgiveness from sins and that there is life eternal through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The question is, are you doing that? Are you fishing For the souls of men, women, boys, and girls who need to hear the message that Jesus saves. 
Are you being obedient? Are you serving Him willingly and obediently in all the ways that He has opened to you? Or are you making excuses? Based upon what we have studied today, the Scriptures are clear that because we are completely dependent upon the Lord and His all-sufficient power, when we live our lives apart from a total dependence upon the Lord, and when we make excuses for why we do not obey His commands, we will inevitably fail at being an effective disciple of Jesus. And it's that that leads me to the concluding thought that I want to leave with you today. You see, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you... Maybe you're struggling with whether or not you truly do believe that just Jesus is who He said He is. Well, here's what I want you to know. That in order for you, and God desires this for you, to experience the blessings that He has for you that far exceed your expectations and your imaginations. But for you to experience them, you will first need to recognize your insufficiency. The Bible tells us that all of us are sinners. There's not a one of us in this room that it leaves out. All of us are sinners. And as such, we are completely insufficient to be able to save ourselves. That is why our faith has to be completely in the all-sufficient Savior who gave His life in exchange for ours. And He is the Savior who calls to you today. He calls to you with the same words that He calls in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want you to know the rest that He offers you comes when you confess your sins, realizing that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That forgiveness... And that abundant life that He offers, I want you to know, is available to you today. No matter where you have been, no matter what you have done, no matter how far you have gone, Christ calls to you today. And I pray, I pray, I pray that you will answer Him and that you will come to Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for the goodness that you show to us, goodness that we do not deserve. We've sung about that grace this morning. We've sung about the mercy. You've given us things that we do not deserve, and you've withheld from us that which we do deserve. And we who are recipients of that grace and mercy this morning stand before you amazed by how much you love us. We've sung about how great you are, We've sung about your faithfulness to us. And so, Father, even now, I pray that you would remind us of all of those things as we then put all of this together. Lord, I believe that there are those in this room today that are really wanting to understand and hear your voice. I pray that they will hear you speaking to them today and that they would respond. Some of them, for the very first time, it may be to truly turn loose of the things that they're trusting in themselves, but then to trust in you completely. I pray that you would convince them of their insufficiency today, but you're all sufficient grace. 
I pray for others of us in this room that are really been confronted by the fact that we are not living as obediently as we should, that there are things that we're choosing to ignore. Maybe it's things that doesn't seem to make sense to us, but nevertheless, we know for sure that you're calling us to be obedient in this area. I pray that we would relinquish our disobedient walk with you and begin to walk closer. There may be those in this room today, God, that have just fallen and fallen hard. And they just wonder, is there any way that they can be restored? My prayer is today that they will run to you, not walk, but run to you. And that they would find you with your open arms ready to receive them and to forgive them and to restore them. Lord, I pray that that would happen today so that they would receive all the glory, all the benefits that come with it, but that you would receive all the glory that comes from it. I ask these things in the name of Christ and for his sake I pray. Amen.